Now, if you would please, and we'll open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 3. Please find uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Those of you that have been with us for the past several weeks, we've been studying uh, in this third chapter a very powerful prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian Christians. And under the circumstances that these people live, this is not the kind of prayer that we would expect. Paul does not pray anything in this prayer for uh, physical or material needs. Instead, this is a very spiritual prayer. Of course, we know the Ephesians living the first century uh, must have been, well, we do know they were persecuted. Many times, uh, I'm sure they were in dire straits. But Paul never speaks in this prayer about anything physical or material. It's just a spiritual prayer. And in fact, what Paul tries to do is just steers them away from thinking about anything physical. And we notice that if you have your Bible open there in verse number 13, when he says that you don't faint over my tribulations or you don't be alarmed because of that. So he says, don't be concerned about about how difficult things are physically, but take care of your spiritual man first, and the spiritual man will transcend the physical. So this is a prayer, as I said, for the spiritual man. Now, what we have here in in this prayer is each uh, petition of the prayer is like taking a step up a spiritual staircase. Here Paul talks about uh, inner strength. He speaks about faith to live by. He talks about being rooted and grounded in the faith. And he talks about the knowledge of Christ. And each of these is a step on that staircase that's going to finally bring us to the top of the stairs. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Verse number 19, where it speaks about being filled with the fullness of God. Now, I want to go back to the beginning of the prayer in verse number 14. And we're going to climb this staircase and then in two weeks, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about uh, the last two verses of this chapter and finish out chapter 3. But if you would stand with me, please, let's read from Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to begin with verse number 14. Paul writes, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, step number one, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Step number two, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Step number three, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. Then step number four, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And then the top of the stairs is that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the reading of your word tonight. Lord, we pray that you might uh, speak to us through the message. Help us to learn something from your word. And we just give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The focus of the message tonight is this phrase in verse number 19, that ye might be filled with the fullness of God. And with that last phrase, we're at the top of these stairs, and we can look down and see where God has brought us from. In chapter 2, Paul started out with telling us that we're dead in trespasses and sin. And when we finally come here in chapter 3, verse number 19, to the fullness of God, we look down on that, and there is a huge leap between being dead in trespasses and sin and being filled with the fullness of God. And in between those that, that bottom uh, landing and the top landing where we are right now is, uh, is all of the Christian growth that needs to go on in every Christian's life. 
Now, in chapter 3, Paul has sought to move us from that position where there's no hope, where we're dead in trespasses and sin, where we have no common thing with God, where we're completely shut out from the mercies or from the grace of God. And he takes these people and he takes us and he moves us to the very zenith of our hope. And our hope, of course, is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants us to be filled with the fullness of Christ. And that just simply means, in one way, to recognize all of the possibilities that we have in Christ. Now, here are are these Ephesian Christians, are people who were babes in Christ. They, They came into the Christian life just like everybody does. All of us are babies when we come into the Christian life, and we need to be, uh, be strengthened in this life to live for the Lord. And so that's why he starts talking about being uh, strengthened in the inner man. We all start out with no spiritual strength. And so we have to have that progression. And these are also people that had to be spoon-fed the Word of God. And Paul says we need to move beyond that now. Now we need to be filled with the fullness of God. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us there that this is the progression of the Christian life. In fact, that's what being a normal Christian is. Now, when we think about normal and abnormal Christianity, maybe we have this whole thing mixed up. But the normal Christian ought to be one who's filled with the fullness of God. And so the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. In other words, what he's saying here, don't stop with just the knowledge that you have Jesus as the Savior. Don't stop there. Grow. Keep climbing higher. Keep ascending the staircase until you finally come to the place that you're filled with the fullness of God. Now, of course, some people have stopped. Some Christians have stopped, and they're at the place where they really don't understand when Paul makes statements like he preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. They have no idea what that means. But this prayer is an ascending staircase, as I say, until these Ephesians reach the fullness of God. Now, I want to talk about that for a few minutes tonight, and I want to talk about being at the top of the stairs, being filled with the fullness of God. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, this evening, the reality of God's fullness. And I say the reality of this because I'm not talking about something that is ethereal. This is not something surreal or imaginative fluff like trying to sit firmly on a vapor of clouds. That, this is not what I'm talking about. I mean, there's, there's something to the Christian religion. I mean, this is not just wistful thinking like so many religions are. There's something here that we can actually attain. Now, you'll notice here that he begins the phrase with that. And the word that actually means in order to. So you take each of these preceding steps in order that you might be filled with the fullness of God. And so you have to take every step. There's not a single step that can be left out here and still enable you to get to the top of these stairs. Now, unfortunately, folks, when you move into this particular realm of preaching, when you begin to think in these kinds of thought processes, there are many preachers who want to stop right here. And they don't really want to go into this because uh, um, uh, they have an idea that, that preaching has to be all practical. I mean, there has to be a practical application to everything that's said. And, and so instead of going into something like this, they, they think that every message has to be filled with life application stories, two dozen illustra- illustrations of here's what happens. And if you don't have all of that, then it's not worthwhile preaching. Well, I'm not knocking practical preaching because we need practical preaching. I, I do, I hopefully uh, do some practical preaching. But there's only one way to actually become practical in your Christian life, and that's when you come to the place that you understand who God is and you understand how and why you are what you are. And so it takes consideration of these things. 
I'm going to talk about the practical side about this truth in just a minute. But I want to tell you that the preachers who have done the most good for their congregations, those who have done the most good for the cause of Christ, those who have done more for the propagation of the faith and the reason why we have, still have our Christian faith from the first century until now, is that preachers have stopped to consider the scope and the magnitude of the fullness of God. So let's talk about the reality of this verse. First, concerning the reality of the fullness of God... It does not mean that you can exist as God. So there's some misconceptions, a couple of these misconceptions that we have to get out of the the way first. It does not mean that you can be absorbed into God and that you and God exist as one. I can't be the same thing as God. The Eastern mystical religions would have you believe that you can actually become one with God. And they believe that the uh, final salvation of man is when we merge into the being of God. And so they teach things like transcendentalism. And what that means is that everything dissolves into nothingness. It's mystical and you finally lose your individuality in the being of God. Then there's another idea that people have that takes a different route, but it actually ends up in the same place. And that's the idea of pantheism. And pantheism means that everything is God, and God is everything. So whether you take the false idea of pantheism or or transcendentalism, there is definitely a distinction between God and man. You can't exist as God. And this whole thing of of, of self-worship is a misconception of God. You can't be God. Secondly, it does not mean that you can be equal with God. Now, in Paul's time, there were religions who, who... just like today, who teach that at some point, that by taking all of the right steps, that eventually you can be equal with God. So they are also climbing a staircase, but they think that when they get to the top, that they're going to have the power, they'll have the abilities, they'll have the attributes of God. And do you know that that idea is still around today? Go up the street two blocks, and you'll find Mormons who teach that you can become a god. When you die the right way, and that is when you die as a good Mormon in the Mormon faith, you can become a god. Did you know that Mormons also believe that God exists in a physical body just like you have? That's how they explain that eventually you can become a god. Now, you you might have thought that those kinds of ideas passed away with the, the Greeks and the Romans with mythology, but it's still in the world today. In fact, folks, Americans and really people around the world have have been fooled into thinking that Mormonism is Christian. Mormonism is not Christianity. People think that, well, Mormons, that's just, uh, that's just another denomination, just another, another division of Christianity like Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists. That's not true. Mormons are not Christians because they don't understand the person of Jesus Christ and the deity of Jesus Christ and who you are and who God is. It's not a Christian religion. And just because they have this name, the the, the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, doesn't mean they're Christian. That's a farce. It's a lie. And I want to tell you why. Because here is a lie, a lie about God that started out very, very early. You know how early it was? At most, a few days or a few weeks after creation. There are some people who even believe that it happened just a few hours after man was created. And you know what it was? It's when Satan came to Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he said to her, it's okay if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Satan came to Eve and he said to her, Now, Eve, the only difference between you and God is God has this special kind of knowledge that you don't have. But if you go eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said that you shouldn't eat of, you will become as God. It's the same lie, folks. It's the same one that's been around for centuries. And if you wonder where it all came from, it came from the same old serpent. Mormonism comes from the same old serpent. And his name's Lucifer. Now, I want to go into something else. Now, I'm, you know, it, tonight's not my night to knock religions necessarily, but we need to know the difference between Christians and people who are non-Christians and, and faiths that aren't really Christian. Another one of these is, is the New Age movement that we have today. Now, the New Age movement believes in ideas like ascended masters. Now, in Paul's prayer here, we're talking about climbing a staircase. We're, we're ascending a staircase to where we come to the fullness of God. But this whole idea has been radically perverted by people like in the New Age movement. And the New Age movement believes that you can become equal with God. Now, here's something that I was reading as I was studying for the message tonight. The, the New, Age, New Ages, uh, Age people have this idea of ascended masters. And here's how they define an ascended master. A being who has become self-realized and serves humanity. A being who has raised his or her vibration to a sustained frequency of light. I don't know about that. He, and, he or she can, become, can come and go at will from the earth plane without the birth-death cycle. Self-realization, here's their definition. Now listen to this. The awareness of our complete and indivisible union with God, which we are. This also means that the ego self has come to know itself so clearly, so lovingly, so wisely, that it's no longer run by the shadow. I have no idea what the shadow is. I didn't go that far. When one is in the illumined state or self-realized, there ceases to be any more inner or outer drama. The personal ego self has surrendered fully and willingly into the loving embrace of the soul. Have you ever heard such nonsense in all of your life? Folks, there is a distinction between you and God, and there's always going to be a distinction. You see, God has attributes, some attributes that are called incommunicable attributes. Now, what that simply means is that these are things that cannot be passed to you and me. These belong to God alone, and we can never have God's incommunicable attributes. Now, if it were true that this phrase, being filled with the fullness of God, meant that, we could, that God could actually dwell in us in such a way that we could experience all the incommunicable attributes, then it would be true. We could become equal with God. But the fact that God had his incommunicable attributes means that you can never be equal with God. Now, what am I talking about? Incommunicable attributes. What kind of things are those? Well, one is eternality. God's the only eternal being. Now, I hate to put it this way, but if you have any sense at all, you, you know that you've been created. You came from somewhere. You're not eternal. There's one way that you could never be like God. God is also immutable. And what that means is that God never changes. And if you're somebody here tonight who hasn't been changed, and this is all doesn't make any difference anyway. We are changeable, and that's why we need, I mean, we need salvation. We can be changed from what we were into something else. God is omnipresent. That means God's present everywhere at once at the same time. God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. God is full of wisdom and knowledge. In fact, the Bible says that he is wisdom and knowledge. Then God is also omnipotent. 
And of course, that means that God is all-powerful. So God is so far above us that it's impossible that God in his glory should be able to dwell in man. Now, do you know who's the greatest example of that? Jesus Christ himself. In order for God to become man, in order for Jesus Christ to become man, what did he have to do? He had to lay aside his glory. And what that means is that Christ laid aside those incommunicable attributes. Now, here's what the Word of God says in Philippians 2, verse 7. But made himself, that's talking about Jesus, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. The word reputation there is the Greek word kenoo, and what that means is to empty. And if you've ever heard of the kenosis of Christ, that's what it's talking about, that Christ emptied himself, and what he emptied himself of was his incommunicable attributes. And he had to do that in order to be able to dwell in the body of a man. So the glory of God and the eternality of God and all those omnis that I talked about a moment ago, those are God's incommunicable attributes. So no matter what anybody says, being filled with the fullness of God cannot mean that you can be God and you can't be equal with God. So what does this actually mean, being filled with the fullness of God? Well, here's what it means. It means that you have the essence of God, not existing as, not equal to, but having the essence of God. Now, let's go back for just a moment to those attributes that we talked about. God has incommunicable attributes, but he also has some communicable attributes. The incommunicable are the ones that keep us from being God, but the communicable attributes of God are ones that he can pass along to us. And that's what we receive through the Christian life, and that's the essence of God living in us. Well, what kinds of things are there that God possesses that he can pass to man? What is it in God that can be passed from his person to our person? Well, there's actually a very scriptural, a very biblical answer for this. Now, we're studying the Bible tonight, so take your Bible, turn back one book to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. And this is a scripture that all of you know very, very well. Uh, this is Paul's summation of the subject. He says in Galatians 5, verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And so the communicable attributes of God are the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Those are things that are passed to us from the Holy Spirit. Now, now here's the neat thing about this. Um, we can't take filled with the fullness of God and, and use that term in an absolute sense. If we use it in absolute sense, we end up in pantheism, transcendentalism, and unfortunately some people end up in Mormonism. So you can't take this uh, in, in that way. You can't take it in the absolute sense. But because we can't take it absolutely does not mean that we can't take it literally. So there is a literal side to this. And, and that's something that we receive from God as we reach the top of this staircase. Now here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.16. God says through Peter, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So what does that tell us? We can become holy. When we get to the top of the stairs, by climbing every petition of this prayer, we are going to reach the place that we become holy. And being holy, that's the highest expression of the, of the uh, relationship that we have with God. 
Now, we notice here how Paul builds the case. When he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, he gives us the steps. And he knows that you can't get to the top of the stairs where you are filled with the fullness of Christ until you take every step that goes along the way. And he says, step number one, that Christ has to dwell in your heart by faith. And so he knows that nobody is ever going to get to the fullness of God unless Christ is dwelling in their heart by faith. You can't get up to the top of the stairs without stepping on the step of the boundless love of Jesus Christ. You can't get there without stepping on the step of being strengthened in the inner man. It's all a step-by-step process. When I was younger, and you probably did this too, that I like to sometimes go up the stairs by taking two or three steps at a time. And you know what happens when you try to take one too many steps? You fall flat on your face. Anybody ever experienced that? Paul's saying the same thing here. Only the difference here is that the risers of these steps are so high that you take one at a time. You can't skip a step. If you're going to reach the fullness of God, you have to take all the steps that he has here. Well, I've just told you, or what we've been talking about is the thinking part of the whole thing. It's maybe it's what you might call the brainy part of this. Uh, and this is the part where you contemplate where you're going. You have the goal in front of you, And Paul tells you exactly how you're going to reach that goal. Now, this is not one of those times when somebody asks you, where are you going? And you say, well, I don't know, but I'll know when I get there. No, you have to know where you're going to begin with in order to get there in this particular case. Now, unfortunately, folks, it's the sum total of many preachers preaching to... uh, get there without realizing how they actually got there. This is what they want to try. And so their, their theology is so disjointed that it's, and so mumble-jumbled that they don't actually know how they're going to get there. And so they hope that when they get to heaven, all that's going to get sorted out then. And so they never deal with the theological questions. And consequently, people in the congregation are the same way as the preacher. They have no idea how they're going to get there either. There's no doctrine. There's no theology taught. Well, Paul's telling us here how to get from here to there... And every step is a logical step that you have to take. So we need to understand the reality of being filled with the fullness of God. But we also need a practical side. We need to look at that. So we're going to talk next about the practicality of God's fullness. I can't exist as God. I can't be God. But I can have the essence of God. So how do I do that? Well, turn in your Bible now to John chapter 15, if you would. John chapter 15. We're going to come to this uh, later in our Sunday morning studies in the book of John. But we're going to take a peek at a coming attraction here. Look at verse number 1. If you found John uh, chapter 15, verse number 1. This is Jesus speaking. And Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it might bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. We've got a lot of vines in this part of California. I mean, uh, if there's any reason to be glad that you live around this part of the country is because here is exactly the example that Jesus is using. He's talking about grapevines. Now, it's familiar to us, and Jesus says here in verse number 5, I am the vine, 
and ye are the branches. Now, one thing we understand is that the branches are not exactly the same thing as a vine. When the, when the um, vine dresser, the vineyard owner, what do they call those, the vineyard owners? What, I don't know. I don't know that, that, that much about wine and grapes to be able to tell you this, but I do know this, that the vineyard owner or the, or the one who's tending the grapevines, he doesn't plant, he doesn't start the vine up, and the first thing that comes out of the ground, he calls it a branch. It's not the branch, it's the vine. But what's in the vine gets transferred to the branches. And so you can take one of the branches and you cut back that branch, you expose what's on the inside, and you'll find out that the branch has the same essence as what's in the vine. It has, it has, it's exactly the same substance. The essential root is the same as all of the branches. Now, it doesn't make any difference how far that you go along those, those winding uh, wires and so forth those, where, the, where the grapes the grapevines wrap around that or the branches wrap around it. It doesn't make a difference how far you go, how far you are away from the original root, yet that branch is still, if you open it up, it's still going to have the same essence as the vine. So this is what Jesus is talking about here. All of those branches actually bear the fruit. The clusters of grapes hang down on the branches, and as long as those branches are attached to that vine, then the fruit's going to grow. But in order to make the fruit as good as it can be, what the vine dresser does is he takes and he cuts away all the bad and diseased parts. And so this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about purging the vine. And that's what Christ does when he lives in us. He purges us. Now, if you want to look at it a different way, if you want to think about it in a different way, think of a goldsmith. A goldsmith refines the gold. He burns off the dross. And that's what Jesus is doing as we uh, live in him and we abide in him. He purges us of all these old habits and all these different things that are in us. Now, one thing we need to be very, very much aware of, that when the Bible talks here, when Jesus talks about purging, he's not talking about people losing their salvation. That's not what he's talking about at all. Purging the vine is getting rid of all those bad things in our lives, all of those habits, so that we can become more like Jesus Christ. And so we have the essence of Christ in us, and that's what it means to be the branch that's attached to the vine. Now, we need to go back to something that I said last week. Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. And what Christ, or what Paul meant, is that I am a Christ-consumed person. Christ is everything to me. All that I am is in Christ. Many people argue against things, the doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God, by saying, if you believe, if you believe in in the sovereignty of God and you believe the doctrines of grace, then that means that you are a puppet in God's hands. Folks, that's exactly what I want to be. I want to be a puppet in God's hands. I want God to control me. Because if he doesn't, I mess things up. Whenever I, God's not in control, I am in a mess. And some people will say, well, well, God's not going to interfere with your free will. He doesn't control you. I happen to believe in free will too. I absolutely do. But I believe that a person is truly free when God is controlling you. That's the greatest freedom that you can actually have. Now, this is talking about, this is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about abiding in the vine. It's when God controls you. So here's the very practical side of it. Let's look at that. First of all, God controls your thoughts. I didn't realize this really at the time when I was writing the messages for, for uh, last Sunday 
tonight and next Sunday morning, I didn't realize that the themes run along until later, that the themes run along such such close lines. I mean, we're, we're, in these three sermons, we're talking about a lot of the same material. But God controls your thoughts. Now, here's thing, one thing that we need to understand. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said, For ye are bought with a price. And that means that God owns you. And if God owns you, he has the right to control you. And that's exactly where we want to be. We want God to control us. So first of all, when we're in the vine, abiding in that, God's controlling our thoughts. How does he do that? Well, here's the same scripture that we used last Sunday morning. Romans 12, verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So how does Christ control your thoughts? He renews your mind. He transforms you by giving you a new mind. Now, people will say, or, or, or maybe you didn't realize this, but there is nobody who has ever had a single free thought. Did you know that? I mean, people like to say, I'm a free thinker. I mean, I make all of my own decisions. I, I'm a free thinker. You're not. Nobody is a totally free thinker. There's nobody who's had a totally free thought. Your mind is always under the control of something. Now, here's what the scripture says. If you're a lost person without Christ, your mind is controlled by the world. It's controlled by the world system. It's controlled by the God of this world, who's the devil. Now, you talk about how free that you might be and and that decisions are left up to you to make all your decisions. You know what Jesus said? He said to the Pharisees, Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. So you don't really do anything on your own. Your will is not your own. Your thoughts are not your own. Your activities aren't your own. They're always being controlled by an outside influence. So when a preacher gets up and he tells people that, well, you can believe on Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. It's just simply a decision that you make, and it's an uninfluenced decision. That's not true. The Bible never says that. Now, the Holy Spirit has to come to us And the Holy Spirit has to enlighten us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And nobody ever comes to Christ unless Satan's control is broken. So God has to work with our will. Our will is free. But it's free to do one thing. And that's to sin. You can sin all you want to sin. Trust me on this. You can sin all you want to sin. And that's where lost people live. They only have freedom to do one thing, and that's to sin. Now, I'm not saying that everybody's a murderer. I'm not saying everybody's a thief or everybody's an adulterer. I'm not talking about things like that. I'm talking about the attitude of our mind is always a sinful attitude. There is no righteousness in us, and that's what the Word of God means. When the Bible says that you are a sinner, it does not mean that you've done the worst things that it could ever be done, because obviously people haven't done. Many have not done the worst things that can be done. But we're in the worst shape that we can possibly be in. And that's because we don't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so without the righteousness of Christ, we can never think like God. But when we come to the place that we're abiding in Christ, then we want God to control our thoughts. So when you get saved, your mind is changed, it's transformed, and now you can think some spiritual thoughts. And nobody could ever do that before. Nobody could ever relate to God until God renews our mind. So Christ controls and changes our whole way of thinking. Now, here's a good way to tell when you're filled with the fullness of God. When you hear a message, when you read the Bible, how does it affect you? Does, does it mean anything to you? Are you getting anything out of that? When you get up in the morning, what do you think about? 
When you go through the day, what do you think about? When you go to bed at night, what are you thinking about? What do you sleep with at night? I mean, what kind of thoughts do you have? Now, if, if you're a person that the only time that you ever think about God is when you go to church on Sunday, something's missing here. And really, people who think like that probably aren't even saved at all because our minds have been renewed. So now we have thoughts of God. So when we're filled with the fullness of God, then God changes our thoughts and everything tends towards the spiritual. That's being filled with the fullness of God. So God's controlling your thoughts. Secondly, God controls your emotions. Being filled with the fullness of God means being controlled by the love of God. So when Christ is in you, the characteristics of Christ also become your characteristics. Now, what does the Scripture say about Christ? It says that he loves. And so a person who has the characteristics of Christ will also love. You love the souls of men, just like Christ loved the souls of men. Now, I want you to think about this for just a minute. And that is, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, this was as men, just after men had cruelly beaten him, the Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah that his, his visage was marred. And, and, and what that really means is that Christ was beaten beyond recognition. Jesus was nailed to the cross. He was tormented. Um, he was stricken and they smote him on the face. They pulled out his beard. They did all of these things. And Jesus hung there and he took all of it. Now, that'd be hard for anybody to do, no matter who you are. But it'd be hard for you to just, just take all of that. But let's suppose for just a moment that you are God and the people that are doing this to you are people that you have created or beings that you have created and really they're no higher than worms. And what they're doing is they're beating the life out of you. Could you control yourself to where you wouldn't lash out at them, that you wouldn't do something? I mean, if you had the power within you with one blast of your nostrils to destroy everybody that was doing this to you, would you do it? Christ didn't. Instead, while Jesus was hanging on the cross and all of this happened to him, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, I want you to fast forward a few months and there's a man by the name of Stephen and he's been saved by the grace of God. He was appointed as one of the first deacons in the church. You remember we studied the book of Acts, and you should know Acts. We spent two years going through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 6, verse number 5, and if you have your Bible and you want to turn back there right quick, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, they had just decided that they were, they were told, the apostles had told the people to go ahead and choose out men that were going to be the deacons. And in Acts 6, verse number 5, it says, And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Now, notice that statement, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Verse number 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did wonders and miracles, great wonders and miracles among the people. So we establish here, I think, that he's filled with the fullness of God. Now notice what happens to him when he begins to preach to the Jews. I mean, he's preaching to Jews just as Jesus preached to the Jews. Verse 15 says that his face looked like that of an angel. So I think we could firmly established that Stephen was somebody who was filled with the fullness of God. Now, let's see what happens to him. When he begins to preach God's word, something happens. It's in chapter 7. I want to start reading at verse number 54, if you have that. Acts chapter 7, verse number 54. 
When they heard these things, now that's the Jews, when they heard the preaching of Stephen, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, that's the Jews, they, and they stopped their ears and they ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And of course, we know Saul later became the Apostle Paul. Verse 59, and they stoned Stephen calling upon God, that is Stephen calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, listen, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said this, he fell asleep. In other words, he died. Folks, when you are filled with Jesus, the fullness of the spirit, you have the same characteristics as Jesus. God controls your emotions. Now we notice here that Stephen said almost identically the same thing that Jesus said. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen said, lay not this sin to their charge. There was an attitude of forgiveness in his heart. Now that's what being filled with the fullness of God does. So when you're filled with God's fullness, you have that same character. God's controlling your emotions. You can't hate people who hate you. You can't be angry and curse the person who slams that door in your face when you try to give them the gospel. You can't be angry and revengeful towards a towards towards a co-worker who makes fun of you and ridicules you because you're a Christian. Instead, what you do is you say, Lord, give me another opportunity. Give me another chance to give that person the gospel of Christ. And that's because you have the essence of God in you. It's because you have the fullness of God. And this is what Paul's talking about here. So what, what happens is when we have this fullness of God, he changes our hatred into the love that Christ had. Now, thirdly, and finally tonight, God controls your desires. So you can do things and you can experience things that, that you couldn't before. All of your goals change. Your life changes. Different things interest you. Different things satisfy you. And when you're filled with the fullness of God, you never think like this. You never think, well, this, this whole thing of the Christian life, this severely restricts my lifestyle. You never think like that. Now, if you're a person who does, that living a Christian life is just too restrictive for me, you're still a baby Christian, or worse than that, you may not be a Christian at all. Now, here's how the psalmist put it. In Psalm 42, he says, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You ever thought about the last part of verse number 2? Usually when you hear preaching on this scripture, everybody concentrates on verse number one. And we think about the deer and think about the deer, you know, running and panting and and, uh, comparing that to a person thirsting after God. But did you ever think about the last part of verse number two? He says, when shall I come and appear before God? What we have here is anticipation of being able to see God. When am I going to appear God? Now, the last thing that you think about if you are a lost person is when am I going to appear before God? You're not interested in appearing before God. I mean, God represents everything that you hate. You don't want to stand before him. You don't have any desire for God. 
But I'll also add this, that a person, a Christian who's out of fellowship with God, also does not desire to appear before God. How many times have you heard a preacher say, if Jesus were to come back right now, would you want him to find you doing what you're doing? How many times have you heard preachers talk like that? You know why? Because they know that a person who is a Christian and not living for the Lord does not want to appear before God. There may be somebody here tonight that you had a thought, you did something today or last week, and you thought, I sure am glad that Jesus didn't come back. Why? Because you don't want to appear before God. But if you're filled with the fullness of God, you have different desires. So here you go. Your desires are these. Lord, fill me more. Lord, I want more of you. Number two, Lord, use me more. Use me in your service. Give me something to do that I can work for you. And then number three, Lord, I'm ready. Jesus, if you come back right now, I'm ready. And you say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, let me finish with a quick thought. This is not something that I want you to pass off lightly. I'm just going to mention it quickly, and I want you to think about this. Jesus died to do more than save you. Jesus died to fill you with the fullness of God. Here's what Christ wants to do. He wants to bring you from that place where you're down here dead in trespasses and sin, and Jesus wants to take you all the way to the top of the stairs. He died to get you to the top of the stairs where you can be filled with the fullness of God. What do we need to do? I think we need to resolve as members of Berean Baptist Church, that we're all going to meet at the top of the stairs. Wouldn't we have a different church if we did? If we were all just filled with the fullness of God and taking the steps to get to the top of the stairs. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to preach your word tonight. Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and your mercy, how you did save us out of our trespasses and our sins. We just praise you so much for that, Lord. And now we do want to take all the steps that bring us to your fullness. We just thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who came into the world, not only to die for our sins, that, but, but also that he might bring us to God. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. Blessing this invitation tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.